You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop, the show that's a little bit of everything with a K-Pop twist. Visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com for more information about the show. That's 17-C-A-R-A-T-K-P-O-P.weebly.com. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today on the show, we have a lot to get to in the world of K-Pop and more stories related to the music industry as a whole and in general celebrity culture. Lots to talk about today. I'm really feeling inspired to go on some more tangents about some serious topics and cultural critiques after me going off about Cashy last week, so feel free to uh, enjoy the next rant today. But before I get to that, just a quick summary of what we have in store today to talk about. We have some updates about the drive-in concert trend as well as some other concert trends that are happening for this COVID era of social distancing and how those shows have been playing out and other plans for future shows that are digital or just socially distanced in nature. We've got to talk about, in general, the tr- the history, really, of pop versus rock and how there has been that weird history in what started it and why pop music gets a bad rep sometimes and rock is considered more of a real genre and the roots of that whole fiasco over time and how it applies to music today and how it's received today and that does connect to how K-pop is received today, of course. And more specifically in the world of K-pop, obviously we have to talk about TXT's new album, the new Augusty mixtape, which is everything, the Seventeen docu-series we gotta talk about more because we haven't yet, a little more on the BTS docu-series, some updates about live show events and things like that, like NCT's virtual show, the the reaction to that and how it was received, the Blackpink fans who have been relentless trying to make sure the girls get the comeback coverage they deserve this time, are finally getting a response from YG Entertainment, which is lacking, but not surprising. A few updates about that K-pop Broadway show that I mentioned in the last episode. And we also, of course, have to talk about the alpacas and the whole fiasco with why an alpaca was trending on Twitter, why there's such a controversy surrounding the alpaca and the people who took pictures of the alpaca and what is going on there. There is a lot to unpack there, so we have to talk about that. Also, I'm going to talk about some of the best debut singles of artists of all time because Rolling Stone has officially announced, in general, outside of K-pop, what the best debut single of all time is, and I totally, totally agree and am excited to announce that on the show. So yeah, lots to stay tuned for, way more that I didn't even mention just now that we have to get to, so we will be jumping right into it. So... First of all, a few personal notes. One, I graduated college the other day, so I'm officially a college grad with a sociology major and a minor in criminal justice, and I'm just very excited, and this show is a lot of fun for me to make, so this is kind of a celebration of sorts for me. I really am feeling pretty good right now, so... This is kind of my alternative to a grad party because obviously it's quarantine season. I can't have a grad party, but Congratulations by Eric Nam will be playing in my head all day as if it hasn't already. And so I'll just have this is my virtual grad party and celebration with other K pop fans. So, anyway, so big exciting news there. I feel like an official sociologist now. Also, another personal note I just found out the other day 
that the fear of the rain is a real thing. I know, now QI can't stand the rain go, going off in your head by Super M. I, because I was, so basically it turns out that Jongen, my bias from Super M and XO, he is scared of the rain and this, the rain is scary and it just, it makes me, it makes me nervous and it's like, so it's, it's just when it, I literally think when it rains, it pours. So I really have a fear of rain. Just going to be open about that. And I didn't know that was a real thing, but apparently it really is. It's called pluviophobia. And I believe it can also be called ombrophobia. I don't know why it has two names, but there you go. And it's the fear of the rain. And so now, not only do I understand the concept of you don't choose your K-pop bias, your bias chooses you because somehow they just know deep down what you have in common. So we have this connection now, so obviously that's why Kai's my bias. But also, it just, you know, made me feel better knowing there's actually a term for it and this might be a legit thing. So, and that's my word of advice for the day is if you are freaking out about rain, playing I Can't Stand the Rain by Super M at full volume is just... The perfect mood for it. If this podcast were still also available in a radio show format, I would totally be playing it every chance I got whenever it rains. So, all right. Moving on to less personal news, but let's talk about some developments in the world of K-pop, and then we will get on to more broader topics related to the music industry. So, yes, August D, I have been listening to it since it came out. It's, It's really so exciting. And so basically, if you don't know, Suga from BTS, he has this alter ego, August D, August, Suga, backwards, um, just to make sure you got that. And I do feel like there are a lot of people out there who, when they were little, thought that Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus were different people. And I feel like that's kind of the effect that August D and Suga have. So people are like, who's this August D guy and why is he rising on the iTunes charts? Whereas if it was Suga from BTS, they'd be like, oh, of course he's high on the charts. It's the same person. So I just want to be super clear about that. Also, it was interesting to me how some ARMY were saying it was probably... So basically the teaser images before this release had this blurred out figure. So you were, people were trying to guess who was in this blurred out image on the countdown posters that were released. And some people thought it was Jungkook talking about his solo mixtape, and I'm just, guys, no, what were you thinking? I always knew it was Augusty, I'm just saying, it had to be, because he is just known for playing us. Like, we know this, you know that he said on the V Live a few days ago, or it was probably longer than that ago, but anyway, that, oh no, Augusty, the second mixtape of the my August D persona won't be out for a while still in the early stages kind of to scrap old ideas and kind of starting fresh so still a long way to go you knew the minute he said that he was playing us come on guys we knew this was about to drop there's just that's just his thing and you know classic Yoongi if you know Jungkook you know that when he says no my mixtape's nowhere near ready I said that in jest not really happening right now it's gonna be a while he meant it and then it's classic Yoongi to not mean it and to tease us. So, people, come on, you should have known that it was him. So, anyway, so yeah, it obviously has, it's full of pops, it's really good. I don't want to give my deep album review yet, because like always, I like to have a few days to really sit with it before I give a review of it. 
but tentatively, I will say that Burn It is my favorite of the songs on there. And Strange, obviously, is great too, but Burn It's probably my favorite at this moment, but we will see how I feel after a few days. But it really has gotten the critical acclaim it deserves, and we're going to talk a lot more about it and the the significance of all of the video elements and stuff in a later episode. But I will just say for now, it's getting what it deserves. The title track hit number one on iTunes in 50 different countries, and eight tracks actually out of the ten debuted in the top ten. I believe there are ten tracks. Anyway, eight of them did debut in the top ten on the worldwide iTunes charts, and 80 different countries. So it topped the charts in 80 countries. The title track topped the charts in 50 countries. It's really doing so well, and that's so deserved. Speaking of big hit entertainment artists just killing it right now, TXT is back, and they are really classic TXT. My tentative early album review for you is honestly that Can't You See Me was a little disappointing. Crown is just still the, it just deserves the crown still. Crown is still the king of TXT songs. Just totally gotta be real about that. But it's not like they went downhill from there. It's just, it's just nothing is, it has reached the joy of hearing Crown for the first time than it did when I first heard it. And maybe part of that's the buildup before their debut, and that was like their big debut single. But I don't know. I'm still not sold on Can't You See Me, honestly. Not my favorite title track of theirs at all. But overall, the EP is great because it's classic TXT. They've really found their unique sound, which is really rare to be happen so quickly and early on in a star's career. Because they just debuted last year, so this is really early for them to already have this signature sound, and that's really impressive. And they just tell stories through their videos and stuff. We're going to talk about that more on another episode. But yeah, so overall, objectively, super well done. Subjectively, it's not my favorite. But I will say Eternally is my favorite. I don't know if I would have made that the title track, but it's a really good B-side. And so that's my tentative review of that. I also like Maze in the Mirror because it's very symbolic and reminds me of Maze of memories from Stray Kids and all the symbolism with that, with looking in the mirror and you feel like it's a maze because you're lost and you can't recognize yourself. All of that symbolism. So that's just what it made me think of and... So yeah, overall, objectively really well done there, and naturally it has gotten a lot of critical acclaim as well. TXT This Week also got their first U.S. performance to air on TV. It was pre-recorded, but MTV aired it, so that was really exciting. It was a first for them, and they performed Can't You See Me? Speaking of television, other news updates, Monster X has a new reality show, which literally translates to Monster X is on vacation, and that will be on the season app very soon, in June, and Sunmi also has a show coming in early June. Hers sounds even more interesting, honestly. It's going to be an SBS show called Sunmi's Video Store, where she basically, it sounds like almost PBS but make it K-pop and more exciting, not uh, monotone, where it's going to be very autobiographical, not autobiographical, biographical, documentary-esque, reliving famous celebrities' lives and moments in their career through archival videos and photos and things like that. So all this 
unearthed archival content for different celebrities will be discussed by Sunmi. So K- other K-pop artists and Sunmi, to, you know, the best of both worlds. So that's all very exciting content happening soon. And speaking of exciting, lots of big view count updates. So Fancy is Twice's seventh video to hit 300 million views. Fake Love is the third BTS video to hit 12 million views. Kill This Love by Blackpink has now reached 13 million likes and remains the most liked video by any female artist on YouTube. With 13 million likes, ooh. Chanyeol's side project studio NNG has now hit 1 million YouTube subscribers, and NCT 127 have become million sellers, beating their own record. I have another NCT dedicated episode in the works, so stay tuned for that because, yes, I know I've already made a couple, but we stay in it and we have to. And it's so exciting. So they've already passed the record and have now sold around 1.2 million album copies for their repackaged album. And on the world albums, on the worldwide albums charts, this repackaged album, the Neozone Finale repackage, it has hit number two on the worldwide charts. Very, very exciting stuff for them. And they just so deserve it. Now, speaking of people who deserve better, Blackpink, remember from the last episode we talked about how fans were very upset that Blackpink has not gotten the promotion they deserve and have such a small discography compared to the amount of time they've been in the business and just compared to other K-pop artists and especially K-pop artists from their own company who doesn't really promote them much. And so fans protested by basically having this truck drive by YG Entertainment's headquarters and blast Kill This Love by Blackpink in protest. They've also created online petitions and stuff. They've been demanding, there's been this big fan campaign demanding more more press for Blackpink, which ironically the campaign then gave them the more press that they've been begging for. So... Anyway, I really admire their tenacity, and they finally got a response. It not surprising to no to no one's surprise really was a typical YG Entertainment vague statement that didn't really show that the campaign was effective because I feel like the timeline is still the same. A few key things noted in YG Entertainment's response, which came a few days after this billboard on the side of a truck playing music incident, basically. So they issued this a few days later. They didn't specifically mention the truck or the fan campaigns, but I have a feeling it was in response to that. It would be odd coincidental timing otherwise. And they basically said, Blackpink has their first full album coming out in September, which they already have 10 songs recorded for, and they plan to release the first single from it in June, another one in July or August, maybe one in July and one in August, but after a few summer singles, then the full album will be out in September. They also reminded people to stay tuned for Blackpink's cameo on Lady Gaga's upcoming album Chromatica, and that was pretty much... All they said. They also said they will be pursuing, quote, multiple projects with universal music. So that's as vague as it gets. So my re- my reaction, that was the objective news. Here's my subjective reaction. <laughs> so that was a really, that was a, I don't know a better word than lame for that statement. It just really, like, 
so, gosh, like, I feel so bad for all the Blinks, the hardcore Blinks who have been really waiting for more content from them, because first of all, okay, so you let them record 10 songs, and now we'll waiting, we'll wait until September, and then we'll get the other seven that weren't turned into singles. It just feels very classic YG, and it's frustrating, and gosh, to think about how tired they must be. I always think about how tired the members of Blackpink must be to have heard their same dozen-ish songs played over and over and over at dance practices, music video shoots, photo shoots, press events, concert tours, concert tour rehearsals, and then to finally get 10 new songs to sing. Like, gosh, they still must be so tired of their own music. So... That is disappointing to hear, and also the September release is a little disappointing. Also, where are the other solos? Because there are a lot of theories, and a lot of fans have really been... I mean, maybe sometimes it is conspiratorial, but I do think they have some solid evidence uh, showing all these times where clearly Jenny has been given the spotlight and not the other members of Blackpink. They clearly like the thought of Jenny becoming a solo artist, if not now, at some point, and she's kind of, well, she's really obviously done so well with her solo single, and so I definitely think they're crafting and preparing for a solo career for her in the future outside of Blackpink, more permanently making solo work outside of them, and not just in addition to working with them, and but it's coming at the expense of promoting the other members, so... It's super common for members of a K-pop group to get solo releases on the side that are have nothing to do with the group music and can be a totally different vibe and everything, but it's less common for one member to get that chance and then the others are rumored to get that chance and then never do. So it's very odd because it's it's been over a year and... We've heard rumblings for over a year now about Lisa, Jaisoo, and Rosé's solo songs, which they've apparently already worked on and recorded, but they're not being released, they're not being promoted, and it's frustrating. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they, the company seems to prefer, or, you know, have a bias towards Jenny, and I don't want to get too conspiratorial, because we don't know Obviously, the pandemic has thrown all sorts of music release schedules into this, just just totally upended them. So they're all in, the schedules are in disarray. So it is weird and it's not surprising right now that artists are pushing back album releases all the way to September. They want to be able to be in full promo mode, go to talk shows and things like that. And they're hoping that it'll be safer by then to do so. So that's not all surprising, but it is... So I'm not going to totally say this is why, but it is very odd and suspicious that there's still no word about their solo songs, and so YG didn't include those in the statement, which does not bode well for the future of those solo tracks, which is frustrating. They could just release them now if they're already done. Other thing is that they have also issued statements about other groups lately, but not Big Bang. And where are where is Big Bang? They were supposed to make their comeback at Coachella, and of course Coachella got pushed back to the fall. So is the Big Bang comeback pushed back too? And why? Why not just give us something? I don't know. I just I just miss Big Bang, and I'm just complaining about it. So anyway, so yeah, a very inadequate response from them in my book. But yeah, it's <sighs> anyway. So. In better news, we have to talk a little bit about the best 
debut single of all time, according to Rolling Stone, who ranked the top 100. So I could go on on and on for hours about the ranking and what I would change in it, but what they really got right was number one. So I'll give you a second to think about it. What do you think critics think is truly the most iconic, best debut single that an artist has ever released? This is music. Um, It's not... Well, I'll give you one hint. It's a pop artist, music of all time, debut single. It's not K-pop, but it is pop. It was a defining moment for pop culture. Got it in your head? Okay, I think you won't be surprised to find out that it is Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, and we love to hear it. That is exactly what they should have picked. That really was such a cultural moment. That really just, woo, I could go on and on just about that song. But yeah, Baby One More Time won as it deserves to. But it got me thinking about what are the best debut songs of K-pop artists. So I'd love to know your thoughts. Follow If you follow 17 Karat K-pop on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Let us know what you think should be the best, should be labeled the best debut song of any K-pop group ever. I personally think that well, months, see, with some groups, it's a little tricky to even decide what ca- counts as their debut single because they had a lot of pre-debut releases or just some, like, Monst X had Interstellar before their technical debut as a band after the reality show days with Trespass. Trespass would be my pick, though, if that counts. And then there's Luna, who debuted over, like, a year and a half. We already talked at length about that concept. So basically all their songs could count, I guess. Although technically probably favorite, because that's when they all came together for the first time. But my my vote for now stays with Adore You from Seventeen. But let me know what you think. I'm curious. And it, it is interesting to think about. So anyway, speaking of iconic artists, should we talk about this alpaca scenario? Let's do it. So if you're wondering what is going on, why an alpaca was trending on Twitter, what has the world come to? Well, let's back this up a little bit. So, there are a couple things you need to know before I tell you the alpaca story. One is what Dispatch is. So, Dispatch is basically like the TMZ of the K-pop world. So, in South Korea, Dispatch reporters are like TMZ reporters. They catch stars all the time. They take those pictures that go in the tabloids and things like that, and they're responsible for breaking a lot of celebrity news and gossip. And they have a reputation for being the the most secretive and what some call the most invasive of privacy out of the tabloids in South Korea. So Dispatch does not have a positive reputation among the public, really. And they really have been responsible for releasing a lot of juicy gossip over the years. They were the ones who broke the story just at the beginning of this year. Wow, it's only been, I think it was just earlier this year, but it's been so many years in this one year, so who knows when it was. But anyway, they broke the story about how Kai was apparently not dating me to everyone's shock, and he was dating Jenny from Blackpink. And so they broke that startling news, and... They've broken a lot of other news over the years too, but that's the most rec- one of the more recent examples. And so they really they're really responsible for a lot of the conversation. And so if Dis- Dispatch breaks a news story, 
then it, you know it's going to trend on Twitter, it's going to trend all over the place, and people will be talking about it. So that's just to set you up and understand the what basically the level of exposure this kind of thing could get. Well, if Dispatch is behind it, you know that it's going to get a lot of exposure, and you know that it is going to raise questions about the 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 ethics of how they got that information in the first place, how sneaky their tricks were to catch them in the act or whatever. They are just notorious for being sneaky paparazzi at Dispatch. So, basically, what they found out was that there were... So, basically, two stories were kind of thrown together, but for different times. So... Basic, okay, one more thing I should explain before I discuss the alpaca. So, basically, so in the USA, if you're in the USA like me, you know that we have the opposite issue than what I'm going to talk about with South Korea, where people are shamed sometimes for wearing masks, they get embarrassed to wear masks, they, or, yeah, it's a whole thing. There's, you know, studies show that men actually wear these masks less in public right now because they fear it does makes them look less manly or whatever. Um, which I will go on a tangent about later, but what the heck. So anyway, so in our country, things are weird right now because people just really want to go out and, have, and you know, live life and not be quarantined. And so there is some backlash public figures get when they are out and about, but a lot of people just get it, get that feeling, and just move on and don't really criticize that. Whereas in South Korea... It's not like every man for himself. It, it's not that kind of mentality there. They grew up with a different value system in terms of sense, a sense of community obligation to one another. So if you do something that's against the public good, you get very much condemned for it. So in South Korea, celebrities are very much shamed if they go out without a mask, if they go out when social distancing was encouraged instead of going out, if they go to any sort of location right after it reopens, it's considered pretty risky still, so they shouldn't do that. They're, they are held to a high standard in terms of setting an example for their many followers. So, those things keep in mind. Dispatch is the reputation of Dispatch and what they're all about, and the cultural expectations regarding community, out, uh, just looking out for each other and abiding by the rules, following the rules, not being about all individualism and freedoms, but really just focusing on valuing the the need to wear masks and socially distance and help prevent the spread of the virus. So, with that in mind, this story will make a lot more sense. So, Basically, there were two storylines that basically got overlap and confused with each other. So there is the situation in Itaewon, and there is the situation that involves the party that the alpaca was at. So the Itaewon night out is different from the alpaca party, but people are really throwing this all into one jumbled story, and it, I just want to clarify these are different timelines. But the basically, so South Korea started their... They never really actually went under lockdown. What South Korea did very early on was start testing a lot of people in contact tracing, which is when you basically track down everyone that someone who tested positive for coronavirus was interacting with lately. And so all the tracing, and then once you catch those people, isolating those people after tracing them down, so all the isolation after tracing and testing really helped stop the spread. 
And so they basically got to flatten their curve a lot earlier than some other countries because they really quickly started the testing and tracing. So with that in mind, basically they never really had to go under lockdown. They just basically, individuals were sent to lockdown essentially after the contact tracing towards them happened. So that's basically what happened. By about April 20th, those restrictions were were getting looser. So you could go out more and do more. So basically, it was never under lockdown. But if you want to consider it a lockdown, the lockdown was lifted April 20th. Then, the weekend of April 25th, 26th, around then, so five-ish days after the restrictions were lifted, four K-pop stars were spotted at three different places that night, different restaurants, clubs, etc., three different locations in Itaewon they had been hopping around too. So from so there was there were four K pop stars, one from NCT, one from Astro, one from BTS, and one from Seventeen. And they were all just out and about that night in Itaewon. And after that happened, fans really kind of freaked out when this news became public by dispatch many weeks later. And which is kind of odd, but anyway. And so people were really really yeah, very outraged in in Korea. So online, the social media backlash was huge about how they had been ignoring social distancing to go out and hang out with each other and that they should have just stayed home and what are they doing, what are they thinking, knock it off. And international fans from other countries outside of South Korea were a bit confused by this, thought leave them alone, let them be free to make their own choices, and were upset because about the backlash that they were getting. So all four of them uh, issued ap- apologies of some sort, some handwritten ones, some through their agency only, but all saying they're just reflecting on their actions now, they're sorry, they wish they hadn't done that, and they ask for forgiveness. And, netis- and netizens in Korea, the, um, they, they really are, they're still very frustrated and thinking, why did you do that? And it's going to be hard to regain their trust, whereas... I mean, so even, like, one of them was Jungkook from BTS. He actually got a medal, this Order of Cultural Merit medal, from the leader of South Korea. And the Order of Cultural Merit is such a huge honor. But these netizens are so upset that they actually started a petition to get that revoked from him for this night out. So, to, uh, so there are a couple things to keep in mind. So, basically, the, that is the summary of the first part of the story, where... In in Korea, netizens are upset because they're seeing that they're violating the guidelines put forward, um, whereas internationally people are saying, well, let them live their lives. Those restrictions were lifted anyway. They didn't break any laws, and they're fine. Everything's fine, and they apologize. Let's move on. But there are just di- cultural differences in what people think is not a big deal and easily forgivable and what isn't, which seems to be a core part of the reason it's being considered controversial and debatable online. So that's basically what happened. And also, they did all get tested for coronavirus after this outing, and they all tested negative. So it doesn't seem like, well, I don't want to say, you know, it doesn't seem like no harm, no foul, because I don't know really tons about the aftermath. But it is weird that Dispatch just revealed this news. So people were already getting kind of suspicious of how this happened. And so then the conversation turned to how to dispatch even get these photos and video proof of them hanging out. And we will get to that in a minute. But so basically 
So this all happened at the end of April. But in the first half of May, there was a separate party with a, with different K-pop stars and K-drama stars. So famous Korean people outside of these four. So these are different people. So these people were at this birthday party. Basically, it's a re it's really wild. So basically, it sounds like they thought the party was going to be at like a club. And so these people went to this club for the party and they didn't realize the party was going to be moved to a location that wasn't really a club. What they walked into was one of those petting zoo restaurant combos. We don't have those in the USA anywhere, I don't think. Maybe we have a couple for cats or something. But anyway, so they're, they're a thing and you basically pet yeah, it's like half petting zoo, see animals, hold animals, take pictures with animals, half restaurant. Not sure how long that will be a thing after COVID, but I don't know. Anyway, so basically it was at one of those animal-friendly cafe places. Maybe it wasn't a petting zoo place, but those do exist. It might have been one where just people are allowed to bring animals so they can turn into their own petting zoo in a way. Anyway, so... An alpaca was there. Someone brought an alpaca to this celebrity party. And yeah, so basically that stirred up controversy for two huge reasons. One, what were they doing at a party? People were still like, you should still be practicing social distancing. Even if restrictions were lifted weeks ago, this is good. It's better judgment. Set a good example. Don't go out and socialize and think that you can just rush back into normal life because we should ease back into post-lockdown activities. And then the second source of outrage was people who were concerned for the alpaca because they were like, did you buy an alpaca for your party entertainment? And we're concerned about the, the health of this alpaca and if it's like a show pony of sorts, what is happening? So there, so it, it was a lot. It was a lot. And so, so I think people got very confused and assumed, wait, so there was this huge big outing that got a lot of backlash and it involved all these K-pop stars and their alpaca. And that just does sound funny when you, just, when you sum it up that way. But that's not exactly what happened. These were weeks apart from each other. And yeah, there's a lot more to it than that, but it's quite a story. So in the aftermath of this event, no one has tested positive for COVID-19 from that party either so far. But a YouTuber, a famous YouTuber who was at that party, did officially issue a statement saying that they are the owner of that alpaca and are sorry for bringing it, but just wanted to reassure people it is a pet they have. It is not something they just paid to take pictures with or otherwise interact with in a way that the alpaca was not okay with, so the alpaca's rights were not violated, so everyone can rest easy about that. It was it was quite a day when all this broke on Twitter, let me tell you, and a lot of confusion about what does an alpaca have to do with this, what is going on, but that is basically what happened, so what a time to be alive, 2020, huh? So, anyway... Let's move on to the next segment of the show, and more news updates will come later on in the show, but let's, let's go now to talking more about this industry as a whole and how it is adapting to these changes for the quarantine segment of the show. So lately on the show, we have been talking about Travis McCready, 
who is an artist that was set to perform in Arkansas, the first COVID-era concert event, where there were going to be all sorts of restrictions, all sorts of ways to have social distancing, chairs six feet apart, 20% capacity filled only in the venue, masks for sale at the show venue, a one-way walkways, only 10 people in the bathrooms at a time, etc., etc. So they had tried to prepare all these uh, CDC guideline-following restrictions and rules for the venue for that night, and the event was canceled or threatened to be canceled by the governor of Arkansas, but it was pushed back to the 18th of May, and that was a compromise, and so the, the show did happen. So what we know about how it happened is that it seems to be have been relatively successful. This show was it was well attended. Fans still came out to see him from all over the place, um, which is can be concerning considering the spread, and we'll get to that later. But anyway, so uh, there was quite a big turnout. People really did want to fill the place, so as much as they could fill it with 20% capacity, they did sell every ticket they planned to, and... I can't say for sure yet if anyone got infected there because due to the incubation period of COVID, we'll, we won't find out for another week or two how how things went down. But so far, it seems like people enjoyed it and that they still, yeah, it was a concert's a concert and they love the chance for live music. But one thing that people who are, who reviewed the show said repeatedly was that there is something missing about it. It does feel weird. Because, I mean, how used to you or how used how used to it are you, are you to seeing to going to a show where everyone's six feet apart? It is just a very different vibe. You can't do the wave. You can't applaud as loud. You can't have a group sing along that's as jovial and full. So there were things lacking, and so there are two big takeaways that seem to be the case with this as well as with, so basically two main takeaways with this this weird, bizarre, unprecedented concert era that I have. One is that precautions are going to have to be taken mostly with testing and tracing, I think, and that's where these uh, these venues are trying to handle things. They really want to make sure they follow CDC guidelines and ideally test people at the venue or beforehand at least te- check temperatures and contact trace if they can, but those are the big hurdles they're trying to figure out how to deal with with such packed events as concerts. So the distancing and the tracing or testing or both, those are the big variables they are wondering how to handle during this era. And then that leads me to my second takeaway from this event, which is that it will never replace a real concert experience. Not that it wasn't real, but this is a band-aid for now. It's a temporary way to for concert fans and music lovers to get their outlet that concerts bring, but it's not going to be permanent. It's not like people will realize, hey, you know what, this six feet, I like not standing so close to other people. As much as I also agree I like that, I just, you know, this is not going to be the new normal for concerts. It's a temporary thing. I just don't think anything can make up for and fully fully just feel so so indescribably joyful in a collective sense of joy and unity that you then you, you get at a regular jam-packed concert there's just nothing like it and nothing can truly replace it but 
that doesn't mean people aren't trying. And interesting, creative new ways to do that continue to unfold. So, first of all, I will say that there there is going to... I, one more thing on this story, though. So, Temple Live, the company that ran this Travis McCready concert, has decided that as a company, they still might go toe-to-toe with the governor of Arkansas in a, a legal dispute over if their rights were infringed upon by not having the show when they wanted. They had to postpone it till the 18th when the guide, the social distancing guidelines were were lowered in Arkansas, and so they still might go to court over that, and if that happens, I will keep you posted on the legal developments, but I don't think they will actually fully go through and take the time and effort to go to court over this, but we'll see. Anyway, so people are continuing to find unique ways to have their concert experiences, so some are just going digital. So Minecraft is actually going taking on basically getting their inspiration from the Fortnite Travis Scott concert and they're going to have their own concert. So in the game Minecraft, they're going to have the Electric Blockaloo Festival, the first virtual festival of its time in late June, and it will have over 300 artists. A few announced so far include Toki Monsta and Diplo, but a lot more will be announced next week and Actually, this may be very good and profitable for the artists because in this Minecraft experience, they will be getting a 60-40 revenue split. So basically, the company that's that's trying this out, Rave Family, Rave Family is going to get 40% of ticket sales and 60% will go to the artists that are performing in this game, which may still seem like not much. But do keep in mind, though, that artists, when they perform at festivals, and this counts as a festival, it's just virtual, but it's still labeled as such, when artists perform at festivals, they usually just get a flat fee for showing up and performing. Any money that comes from merch, from ticket sales, from whatever else is involved in their set, that money is distributed to everyone else that helps make that show happen. But the artists themselves, the money they get is just the fee they get up front from the company that hosted them. So Rave Family is going to pay them 60%, which is... Is it pr- is it pretty substantial, especially considering how they would only typically get that from Ray Family, but they're getting that sixty percent from ticket sales as well. So that's interesting to keep in mind. There is also going to be Future Con, a fusion of a lot of J-pop and C-pop acts in this festival on YouTube. So Future Con will be May twenty seventh, ten a.m. Korean time, which I believe is a day earlier than for the USA, so when it's 10 a.m. in Korea, it's about 8 p.m. here the day before, so you can check that out. That's a, a pretty decent time for the show, and so that's happening. There was a drive-in event for first responders. It was a special show for first responders to attend, I believe, for free in Florida. DJ D-Nice was there to play a set. I know Keith Urban also did a drive-in style event like that. Others have tried to do that as well. And so there have been some venues across the country who have tried to do this drive-in concert thing. And it it has had um, some mixed results. Um, some people, so basically one venue that's really going to try to do this is this stadium, this sports stadium for the Texas Rangers. And they're going to host at least four events throughout the summer at a f- that are all drive-in events. And so... Basically, it sounds like some artists are doing that by playing their music on stage. So it's just like a regular concert, but you're in your car. So it's a drive-in movie experience, but a concert instead. 
and other artists are actually just playing their music live but not having live speakers so the music is just going right to your radio so instead of listening to the muffled sounds of a show while you're in your car you're listening to the radio but then playing live in front of you so there are pros and cons apparently so far they're testing things out it sounds like crowds prefer the not radio version because the farther back you are, apparently, the harder it is to keep the radio signal or you'll get a delayed signal so it doesn't feel as special. Also, in general, just when you're just in your car listening to the radio, it might not feel like it was worth the price of admission. But then other people like that feeling, maybe make it, make it feel more intimate and personal of a set than it would if you just hear the muffled sounds while you're in your car or, you know, the sounds of the wind and other external elements that might interfere with your sound. There's also, they're trying to deal with the fact that how people park their cars can affect the sound quality you get from and how far back you are and how distanced the actual car should be. And with a lot of the transmission really of COVID-19 is not through touch, but through people, for people to people, not just object transmission, but human transmission. So people are leaning out their car windows, dancing, or not dancing, sinning and laughing and doing things with their mouths that is that could spread the virus. So you need to spread out the cars too, so that's something to keep in mind. So there are a lot of kinks to work out, but they're trying this out. And the big sticking point really is revenue. Because, like I said before, these artists usually get paid for the tour and appearances, uh, venue appearances, really just flat. Uh, as opposed to getting money based on merch sales and things like that. So the people who are really... So the artists can go to these drive through venues and still get paid what they normally would. I mean, hypothetically, if they followed the same formula, but they'll probably change it now. But the point is that they can still get paid. It's the crew members that really are going to struggle to pay the bills because they pay based on the revenue they get from other sources. And that's really hard right now. Ad revenue in general, not even just for music, but all over, ad revenue is down. People aren't buying much right now. The economy is tight, and we're pretty much in a recession, if not a depression, and so people aren't spending money. Consumerism habits are changing to, you know, and really just lowering. Like, there are just lo- there's just less of a consumerism uh, mentality. There's just less of an appetite for buying things right now, whether you can or not. If you're never leaving your house, you probably aren't super, super uh, ch- chomping at the bit to buy stuff because it's just, who do you show it off to? Where do you take it? Like, anything you'd buy. So it's really changing our shopping habits and really lessening them lately. So so ad revenue in general is struggling to find buyers right now in general. And so ad revenue makes up a big part of the budget as well for these shows, so that's a struggle to deal with, especially if you're not in a venue. They can't put, like, ads for different events on poles and buildings and stuff if no one's going in the building. So there are those issues. There are also, of course, merchandise line issues. Who's going to actually pay for merch right now? And in general, for concert, for canceled concerts, that, that will people actually buy the merch from it? So it's just being it's proving to be hard to monetize. And so, but then again, it's giving some work. So even if it can't really pay, even if you can't make the same money you used to at least these crew members are still getting a paycheck of some sort rather than nothing and they still get to go out there on the road and it's you know it's therapeutic to just play music and 
hang out and have that sense of intimacy with fans, but we'll see. Like I said, it can't replace the real thing, but it, it will be interesting how these events continue to unfold. I know the shows at the Texas Rangers venue are going to, basically how they're going to do VIP events is it'll be $80. So $40 if you just want to go, $80 if you want the VIP parking spaces, which don't really have any other VIP benefit, but you get a closer spot. And so that'll be interesting how VIP packages look in the COVID era, because that is also a huge bonus for making money at these shows. But how much are people willing to shell out for a VIP experience when their VIP experience is just in their car closer to the stage? Like, maybe they need maybe they should get an extra merch pack with that or an autograph or something but they might have to really add more incentives or lower the price or I don't know who's buying those VIP packages but we'll see other virtual tour things happening so some people are getting just creative with how it sounds so it's really a regular live stream but they're making it sound different so like Phoebe Bridgers is going to have a tour with different opening acts each night in different locations like her bedroom versus living room locations. So it's still kind of uh, kind of a tour. I think she's also playing at different time zones for each show. So it still kind of is like that, but from her house. I know the Jonas Brothers are kind of having a virtual tour experience where it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure interactive thing, it sounds like, where every day when you go to this website, you can follow them on tour and get like unlocked bonus video content and stuff. So there's still ways people are trying to find... Ways to make a regular live stream not sound like a regular live stream. I know at the end of May, ATs is going to have a live stream event on VLive. And they, they said it's a virtual fan meeting, but it's really just sounds like a live stream to me. But we'll see. So people are really experimenting right now. And it's interesting how they are doing that. So another thing is that there is a festival called Lock-In. L-O-C-K apostrophe N was postponed to the fall, usually happens in June, but in, but it's not canceled yet for this year. So they plan to have masks and require users to wear them. They are going to require reduced capacity, maybe more spread out campsites for this festival. But Lock-In still plans to go ahead. So how festivals adapt is also going to continue to be very interesting. And we'll see. I do think the drive-in trend will continue. There are some other live stream events that I find interesting lately. So in terms of the fan show, so as I said before, when I was talking about Taeyeon's event and Red Velvet's, some fandoms are really just putting matters into their own hand and saying, well, if we can't see our artists, we will make up our own artist tour. We'll make them tour by putting together old artist performance videos, music videos, etc., into one long video stream and people around the world, all these fans can tune in live to watch that stream together. And so that, that's been a cool way to connect, and I've enjoyed that. There's another NCT one coming up, so if you want to stay tuned for that, which will be happening in June, they are on Twitter and Instagram at NeoCityNCitizens, and you can search for them on YouTube by searching NeoCity The Experience. That will be an exciting fan show. Speaking of NCT, they had their Beyond Live virtual reality style show last week. So, like I've said before, it sounds like a lot of people, but if you think about the... If you do the math, I talked about this a lot before, so I won't go into it again, but if you do the math, it may not be as impressive of a turnout as they make it sound. But they did get over 104,000 viewers worldwide, 
from 129 different countries. And it does sound like it, this one was the best one yet. It Fans do seem to, to continue to feel like the Beyond Live app concert experience truly is immersive and intimate and feels like a real live show. So I really may... I really may have to try it, and I'm really just kind of holding out my money to see what if it's really, really worth it, but so far the reactions have been so positive, overwhelmingly, and so, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see. If Baekhyun does a show, I know he's doing a little showcase, but like if Baekhyun does a full-length concert in the app, I will definitely join in, or Taemin, oh yeah, Taemin should do his comeback there, I know I've said that before, but I'm just saying. So anyway, I think... The Beyond Live app has a lot of potential to influence the industry, so I hope people don't forget to credit K-pop with starting using it. But there are parts... I don't know why I'm still so skeptical about how well this work works. I guess I'm just still confused. And But apparently, it really is immersive. It just... The way it's described, I can't help but feel like it comes off as corny and like you're just watching any other video. Just trying to picture, like, there were apparently CGI dragons and, like, this whole 3D Highway to Heaven screen for the Highway to Heaven performance. So I just, it's hard for me to visualize how realistic that can truly look. But maybe I'm just too cynical. But I don't know. And so we will see. But, yeah, fan reception was overwhelmingly positive. Some moments that really stood out to people and based on the reviews to critics as well and to me reading them was that you know their their senior in the industry joined the show for a quick hello, which was exciting, and we got DJ Johnny, which we never get. That was exciting for the dance-off. So, good stuff. It was also interesting, apparently, for the, the encore, in lieu of some more songs, they just had, like, a fan Q&A for about 15 minutes and really just had a conversation with fans through the video chat features, which is really cool. So... There, that might be interesting. So if there's any aspect of this weird virtual concert era that will probably stick around, it'll probably be that version of Encores, honestly, because people are craving those human connections right now more than ever. So I feel like people will might actually want that. After all the songs of the night, they might just want a Q&A time with the artist or some other sense that they're getting a special VIP feeling that they're, they've been craving for a while now. So... I just, I predict if any aspect of this stays, it'll probably be that change of the encores, really, but we'll see. But there were some, the main criticism that reviewers seem to have of the show was that moments really did break the allure and really break the sense that you were really getting immersed in the show and were moments that made people snap back and remember, oh, this is all virtual it's not really, I'm not physically there. Moments where they would say something about, to uh, people to adjust the sound quality, for example, or moments that felt very staged in terms of, like, promoting Beyond Live or promoting, like, Nature Republic, this brand that NCT represents. When they mentioned Nature Republic, it felt very scripted, which I'm sure it was, but it's like, what are we watching? What did we pay to watch? So those moments really break the aura of just realness of the show, so that seemed to be the main criticism, so we'll see how that changes going forward. Also, real quick, uh, shout out to Ace. They are a rookie K-pop group, but they're doing so well. Already three years into their career, and they had a special live stream show the other day that I tuned into. It was free on YouTube, and it was really great. Ace did a great job. 
And just, yeah, congrats to them. They performed their covers. Of, you can still watch the covers online even if you missed the live stream. Go check out their covers of Blackpink songs. They are always good at those. And their All of Me by John Legend cover is superb. But Ace did a great job. They sounded great. It was just a stripped-down acoustic show. They did some of their original stuff, but a lot of covers. They, they said some personal words. They responded to fan comments in the live chat. They revealed their light stick design. It was a very cool celebration of their three years as a group. So hopefully more artists do those kind of anniversary events for their groups. Uh, two more quick things about this. So the fan K-pop fan meetings are continuing to happen, but over the phone. So instead of basically going to have an autograph signing, go to and go to have your album signed at an autograph signing. You basically, if you're one of the lucky 50, typically 50 people who bought a copy of the K-pop stars album, then you are, you basically win the golden ticket if you're one of the lucky 50 people and you get a call from them and they will call you and you'll get to participate in this phone version of a meet and greet to chat for them for a minute or two. So I have questions about this because it basically, it is available for people in all, all countries but it's the actual call is going to happen for for lucky fans at 1 p.m. Korean time, which is about 3 a.m. in the USA, at least where I am. So that is, or I, yeah, I believe it's 3 a.m. here if it's 1 p.m. there, and so that that's not ideal. For, so I I have a feeling a lot of people will uh, be less inclined to buy the album or participate in the call and get be a lucky ticket winner due to time zone issues. There's also the concern with translations, because let's say you get only a minute, no matter where you are in the world, you only get a minute to talk to them, then half the time is spent the translator saying, you know, you said hi and thanks for everything or something. So I wonder if you get extra time if you're translating, or maybe not. Uh, and some calls I know have used translators, but I don't know if all of them will. So I have a lot of questions about this, and it will be interesting to see how these calls play out in terms of K-pop's global reach, because it's been on the rise, but what if it's kind of stymied by the fact that there are time zone issues and other technical issues with trying to connect overseas right now. So that will be interesting how that unfolds. Also, keep an eye on Twitch and TikTok. Both of those mega apps we've already talked a lot about on the show, but just keep in mind that they both apparently plan to release reality TV content in the near future and more concert live streamed events. So they really are trying to make it as official streaming platforms mixed with social media platforms, which can have a big impact if you combine those things into one service, as we talked about last week. So just keep an eye on those. Also, TikTok just hired its first official CEO, who is the man behind ESPN Plus and Disney Plus. So TikTok and Twitch, but especially TikTok, really going places. Keep an eye out for them. So that is the latest in the music, and especially the live music industry. Now, I have to go on my special rant about basically all sorts of... Well, maybe I'll just, I'll just tease we're going to address the Lana Del Rey controversy and how it applies to identity in, in terms of musicians and their celebrity personas and how we portray celebrities. That is the rant of the day. After these messages, you will get to hear that.
Poptimism is basically what it sounds like, pop optimism. And basically, rock has always been viewed as the best music genre objectively in terms of how it's produced and created and viewed as the real music. And pop music has really been given a bad reputation. Ironically, it does so well on the charts and everyone listens to it, but everyone views it as not real compared to rock, or at least that's how it used to be. So people who were too pop were criticized. You wouldn't hear people say that was too rock, but other people would definitely say too pop. That was too manufactured, too auto-tuned, too techno. All these terms used to describe pop music were said in such a derogatory way, and it affected music reviews, and people just overall view all pop music as sounding the same and being devoid of value. And just being very... The contrast that were drawn through a lot of music criticisms over decades, and really, actually, the the past few decades, was has been about basically drawing contrast between pop and rock in the sense that rock reviews are associated with the lyrics and the depth and then the pop song reviews are viewed as bubblegum tunes that are very light on substance and therefore what is the point really it's not real music it doesn't stand up as much as the rock music or other deeper meaning music and so it's it has less inherent value it seems to be what the reviewers have said now the poptimism music really especially kicked off even more than ever, in 2017, when Nielsen Ratings officially reported that for the first time ever, pop music was listened to more than rock. So pop music officially surpassed rock music for what most people listen to. That actually didn't happen until 2017, believe it or not. But since then, people have listened to pop. And there have been some stars, like I've talked a lot about Charlie XCX on the show before and how her music's an acquired taste because it is very pop. And stars like Charlie are really suddenly getting more credit and just popularity overall. More people are listening to pop. And I really have always viewed some elements of pop as an art form. And people, so things like adding auto-tune to a moment in a song, adding certain synth layers and other elements that sound a little futuristic and out there, adding layers to songs that sound what people describe as manufactured as opposed to like raw instruments or stripped down instrumentals or whatever they whatever terms they like to use when talking about rock those opposite terms that have been associated with pop songs I really like I mean it's still an art form to me how you can layer and create a song that is so catchy to me that's still an art process and so and that's what I like about Charlie's music is you can just hear all these layers, all the way she mixed different beats and stuff together. It's just very cool to me. It's a, it's quite an art project of sorts. And so the Poptimism music basically is these defenders rose um, basically against the thought of rock as a superior genre. Basically not saying that pop is the best, but more so saying uh, have more respect for pop as music and as something that can be created as art, and that it deserves to be viewed as on equal footing with reviews of rock music, and that it's just as authentic, it's just as real and important, and has the most value as rock music. And so that really ties into how Twice was reported on lately. So basically, Twice's music has gotten that negative review for being very pop, for being very bubblegum, and... Uh, yeah, it, it's really something, too. Our history with music, too, it just it always has that racial element 
because race has shaped music in all culture forever. So it really does um, also, people might view it as not the right image for them because it's very cutesy and they assume it, it, it falls into those the, it, it, when they call them to, you know, delicate or useful or whatever, they they seem to be using tropes criticizing how um, Asian women are perceived particularly, and that's not the case. So it's just all of these internalized senses of racism and misogyny and how we view music and their artists and how we've implicitly started to associate in our minds certain traits with certain types of people over the years has really gotten so messy and wrong in a lot of ways. And so the piece was very, very well written and really pointed out the benefits of Twice's music because Twice's music is fun and it's cheerful and I love it. And that is it. And the thing is that the way, the way society has decided to start criticizing and talking about music and reviewing music being good based on whether it's deep or real, basically stop just viewing just so narrowly defining the definition of what's real and authentic music and valuable music because to me the value in music is for it to be whatever the listener wants if you want a deep uh wallowing in your feels experience and you want that emotional moment where you're crying your eyes out to a relatable song i get that if you're big purpose of music for the day is you're just a special mental escape for you it's just fun and joyful and mood boosting and that's that and it's not lyrics with deeper meaning then that still has deep meaning for you and is still valuable and a personal part of your life your life soundtrack cannot all be the deep stuff in the stereotype deep meaning is not just about lyrics it's about purpose in your life and so i hope more more critics take that into account, especially in this quarantine era, when the ability to actually do the things that pop songs do in terms of working with apps and other other technology to create music are actually being valued a lot. So they're becoming in handy, and so hopefully that will help with this poptimism trend, which I am totally on board with. Women, all all female singers deserve the agency to be whoever they want, and you don't need to jump to assumptions and stereotypes about what is a persona. So there's always that, that, that issue where people talk about their stage presence as there's no way they're really that happy and cutesy, and the, that's all a stage act, that's all a stage persona. And Lana has had those same criticisms, like people think her thing is all an act, and how much of it is a persona, and people debate that all the time, how much of her persona is her persona versus just who she is off stage, and trying to decipher where those lines are can be drawn. Again, more binaries where those can be drawn between on stage versus off stage Lana, on stage versus off stage twice. And the big thing is, I think the key to not judging female singers so harshly in the future is to stop trying to draw dichotomies between their on and off stage lives. Stop trying to figure out what, how much is a persona and how much isn't. Because maybe it's just them. They're expressing a different side of themselves, but that doesn't mean it's inauthentic. And so being cute and cheerful and happy like twice can be just as authentic as being dark and deep in the lyrical sense so just this let's not tear apart these stage personas and try to overanalyze how much they're 
truly that optimistic and fun and just happy and just let them be optimistic and fun and happy without criticizing it or devaluing it and making it seem like they create subs less like no substance in their music because how are you defining substance in their music so hopefully that makes sense is that a key to just overall musicians and their freedom is to let them put on a stage persona if they want to. That's a huge outlet for some of them, but some of them it's not. And who are we to decide how much of their persona is real and how much isn't? That's the that's entirely up to them. And society really tries to decide for musicians how much must be their persona, how much should just be a stage persona, how much should stay on stage, how much should stay off stage, how their sex, sexuality, gender should all link up in certain binary ways in order to portray a certain persona versus their authentic persona off stage. So if we just stop trying to make assumptions and dictate what personas are valuable and what music comes out of those personas and how that's valuable, if we redefine and expand our view on valuable music content, that can make a world of difference in terms of how we put music genres and the musicians behind those genres on more equal footing in the future. And so I haven't talked much about Hit the Road, 17's mini docu-series on YouTube and on Weverse very much yet, so now it's time to do that. So my first three major remarks that I have coming out of watching the first four episodes, so the first thing is that I really like it. I just think it's well done, and I know I'm biased to say it's great, but it really is a great inside look at what goes into making a world tour happen. It doesn't shy away from addressing a lot of the downsides, the mental and physical toll it takes on these people to put on this production and perform nonstop in preparation for the tour, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that go into the productions, uh, and in general being a musician from start to finish in the album process and everything. So it really just gives quite an inside look at all of that. You get to see Woozy in the recording studio producing his tracks and other special moments like that that feel personal. So just overall very well done in terms of the viewer experience you can get. Second thing I noticed that I really liked was that each episode is going to be based on, like, each episode... Every member of Seventeen gets an episode about them, so each member gets an episode that where they're really the narrator, they get to respond to the interview questions and show their side of the story and show what they do and what they add to the group, which I find really cool, especially for a group with so many members, because it's got to be hard some days to really feel invisible as you're performing with 12 other people on stage, so... To have for them to each get a chance to literally use their voice during this docu-series, I really appreciate. And plus, everyone can get a special episode for their bias, so you have an episode that's all about your bias. Like 12-ish minutes, just non-stop content for, uh, for, of your bias. So I get 12 minutes of Joshua content whenever that episode drops, which maybe they were waiting for after I graduated, so that's my grad present. But anyway, my third main observation slash takeaway so far has been that, and this is just kind of random, but I've been really thinking about this a lot. So if Quibi was, if Quibi was a success, so I think seven, if Seventeen had sold their docuseries to Quibi, it would have made Quibi a success and not a flop. So hear me out on this. So 
If you didn't know, Quibi is the streaming service that released a month or two ago, and basically it specializes in original content that is short form, as in each episode is about maybe 15 minutes tops, I think. It's really short. And the, the purpose really is that it's supposed to be shows that you can watch on your phone and just mobile vertical videos that you can check out when you're on the go. So it's really for like if you're waiting to pick up your kids and you're just or you're just waiting to, for some for anything, waiting at a bus stop, waiting somewhere, riding the subway or whatever. Whenever you're in one of those periods where you've got a, a few minutes to kill but don't know what to do, Quibi was the ideal solution that they promoted. This company basically created content for those moments and in general this bite-sized media content that just seems very very relevant in today's media era. So it seemed like it had all the makings of a great smart formula and success. But then a pandemic happened and no one started leaving the house or having those moments where they're waiting for something really in terms of short content. It's not like someone has 10 minutes to kill before they leave the house, so they're going to watch a Quibi. It's someone has 10 hours to kill, so they want to watch something else, not something that will take up like less than a half hour of their time. So people have not really... Actually, the numbers of people who have tried Quibi so far are pretty promising for it, but not a super surge. It's nothing like... It's a mere speck of what Disney Plus got its first day. So... It is. It was not the success they expected, and really largely due to the pandemic, circumstantially, it was kind of out of their control. Although also, I read a lot of reviews of the Quibi shows, and none of them are very um, well acclaimed, very critically acclaimed. So the the quality of the Quibi shows is still debatable. But but even besides that, some people like watching what is considered trash TV. But so I don't know. The future could be up in the air. But anyway, so Seventeen's miniseries is pretty short as well. So if if you have to, I don't like when brands think like this, but I'm just trying to think like them. And I feel like, because I just predict this would happen, not that it'd be good. But they, you know, they companies know that for if they want a successful marketing strategy, it's very easy to get that with the help of K-pop. K-pop gives content a huge boost nowadays. It brings in demographics that otherwise wouldn't because we are some diehard, passionate fan bases. So if our fave is going to be on your app or whatever, we are way more likely to tune in than if someone we've, we kind of are a casual listener of um, is going to be involved. So it's just, it's great hardcore fan bases that you could reel in that you wouldn't otherwise get. So that's why a lot of people like to add K-pop artists to lineups or advertisements or whatever. So marketing campaigns and K-pop really thrive together. And so if Seventeen show had been sold to Quibi, I really think Quibi would have been kind of saved from from extreme damage because just knowing uh, knowing the carrots and other K-pop fandoms, we would totally gobble that content up in Quibi, would pay for Quibi if we had to, and just, yeah, we would we would just watch all of the K-pop content. So if they had some of that, they probably would have been more successful because no matter what the circumstances, we will make it work. We're used to abnormal schedules to make it work. Like, if you've got to wake up at 3 a.m. for the live stream, you got to wake up at 3 a.m. for the live stream. It's, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> so... 
so that was my prediction. So that was what I was thinking. So part of part of me watching was just thinking in, in the economic, overly analytical aspect of it. But I really just also did enjoy. I like that it wasn't really a concert film as much as an, a real docu series. Uh, some some docu series are more concert film based, and I'm I personally like hearing their stories more in the interview quotes. So, and I like the fact that each member gets their time in the spotlight. So overall, really great content. And just as good, if not better, than them breaking the silence. BTS's docu series, which continues to be really good. My review is kind of the same as it was last time we talked about that show, where I like that they're honest, and this time they seem more, just even more vulnerable and willing to be honest than ever. And I really appreciate that. I think the fans do too. And it's it's just it brings a lot. They're all their classic selves, and we like to see that. We see them with their guard down. We see them just expressing what their lives are like pretty unfiltered and I like that view of this unfiltered approach. Now transitioning in a totally random way here, so one last quick story to share with you today. So on the last episode I mentioned the fact that there was that off-Broadway K-pop production that was I was very critical of. The latest update is that it is still happening and I did look more into it so maybe I was too harsh the first time, so I apologize if that turns out to be the case. And it might be a great show because I haven't seen it. I haven't read the script. So maybe it really is great. And I am starting to warm up to the concept now based on more that I've learned about the show. So the show is going forward, apparently, in its off-Broadway pilot test uh not pilot test episode, but you know what I mean, a trial run of sorts, a focus group of sorts showing in 2017, and I believe in 2018 as well, they had a showing, and they got a pretty good reception. They even won some off-Broadway theater awards of various types, so it actually is pretty critically acclaimed, at least in the -the under-the-radar Broadway scene, and so apparently it's well done, and the crowd really liked it, and so now they are going to try to really make it happen for Broadway someday, and they are basically saying right right now, you know, during this pandemic, they want to still hold auditions, so now they're going virtual. So if you go to the K-pop Broadway website, you can upload a short video audition of yourself and send in a resume copy, and there you go. So they also find this the most geographically and in general financially good way to hold auditions, and maybe it is the future of a lot of auditions. You never know. So Anyway, so it'll be interesting how that plays out, and I will keep you posted. So I looked into the company a little. It's called Woodshed Collective, and I hadn't heard much about it, but apparently it is pretty critically uh, acclaimed and praised in the Broadway community. And so, and they, they are specifically for this show looking for Asian performers, which is the thing that I really wanted to make sure was happening and confirm and see who's behind this show. Based on what I've seen so far, it looks like a lot of white people are directing and running this show, but there is going to be an all-Asian cast, it looks like. So I just hope they do this, the story of Korean music justice and don't, don't misrepresent it because of ignorance or overall just a lack of being able to truly get what it's like. I hope they do also talk to real K-pop stars and get what it's like. I know it's it's a, supposed to be a fictional show. It's not like a documentary they're making here, but I just, you know, the the 
the the less they hang on to tropes about Korean music, the better. So I hope they do justice to the genre and paint it in a good light, which they probably are. I don't think they would do this with negative intentions, but just just something to keep an eye out for. So I'll keep you posted on that, as well as a bunch of other stories. There are a lot of news stories even that I didn't get to yet. Some more legal disputes to talk about, some chart issues with music charts manipulation or not, and the represented numbers of album sales and whatnot, and some fiascos associated with that. I have some more, of course, music video analyses to get to, a more thorough, in-depth August D mixtape review. I have to talk about my senior project in the world of CGI characters like Miku. I have a whole bunch to talk about in the worlds of K-pop, J-pop, C-pop, pop in general, and also talking about a new trend that is happening that's K-pop related, new viral dance trend that is pretty unexpected, but awesome. I'm all here for it. There is a whole bunch of other stuff to get to, so stick around, stay tuned, because in a, in a day or two, well, maybe more than that, but in the first half of the coming week, you will get the next episode, and probably another one later in that week, so... Stay tuned, lots of content coming up, and in general, also, I'm just in kind of a celebratory, reflective mood, because the 27th episode, this is episode 26, the 27th will mark the end of season 2 of this show, but because we're in a pandemic and time has no meaning anymore, I'm just going to go jump right into season 3, so it's really an arbitrary number, but I do also like to think it's symbolic that we're ending with 2-7, because NCT-127 you know, special shout out. And so uh, the last season had 17 episodes. So I already did that symbolism. We got to change it up. So anyway, so there's that. And for the last technical episode of the season and, you know, a continuation of my celebratory mood for graduating, I want to spend it reflecting on my senior project, impact of K-pop on my life, maybe more personal stories, and also talk about, yeah, more ups and downs, my favorites and least favorites and ranking the midpoint, I know it's a little early, but midpoint of 2020 best of K-pop release this year so far, as well as best in other music categories, so a whole bunch of stuff to get to, so please stick around, stay tuned, and I will, I will see you all before you know it in just a few days, so have a good one, and yeah, I will see you too, I will see you soon, (laughs) thanks for listening.